0: reading this morning is from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him.
1: Good morning, everybody. I want to thank Joy, who's one of our middle school students, for reading from our passage today. We're going to be in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, so feel free to follow along on your mobile devices or you can use the Bibles that are in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have your own Bible, please feel free to take one of ours. We are happy to, to give them to you this morning. Well, I, I want to tell you, I thought a lot about how I wanted to open things here this morning and through multiple renditions of, uh, of practicing through this, one phrase kept coming back over and over again. And that phrase is thank you. And you may be wondering, Josh, what exactly are you thanking me for? Well, let me give you some background and explain. You see, 11 months ago, I accepted the offer to come and work here at Parkview. But before uh, I could move here and start working, I had the small task of uh, getting married. And so August 30th, 2014, my wife Paige and I were married in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. A few days later, we were swept away to Honolulu, Hawaii, where uh, Paige lived out her dream of swimming with dolphins. And, uh, and then we, we came back to Rockford, our hometown. We packed up our things, and then we moved to DuPage County. And two days later, I started my first day at Parkview, where we were greeted with a warm welcome and a gigantic hug from our executive pastor, Dave Davis. <laughs> and since then, we've been off and running. They say that the three biggest transitions in a couple's life are getting married, moving, and starting a new job. (laughs) So we decided to get them all out of the way in, in one fell swoop. I would be lying to you if I told you that all those transitions have been easy. They've come with their share of challenges. But I can also tell you that as Paige and I have talked about this past year, we have absolutely loved it. And it's been a lot easier than it should have been. And so as Paige and I were talking about what what makes this year so special? Why was it so easy given all those moving pieces? We came to the conclusion that a big part of it was you. And so that's why I wanted to start out on behalf of Paige and I by saying thank you. Thank you for taking us out to coffee. Thank you for introducing us to Blackberry Market cinnamon rolls. (laughs) Thank you for letting us into your home to color Easter eggs. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for not only letting us into the good stuff, Thank you for trusting us and letting us into the bad. Thank you for letting us into the messy parts of life because we want to be there to celebrate the good and to come alongside you in the bad. I can tell you after being here for a year that I genuinely love being one of your pastors. And Paige and I, we unabashedly call Parkview home. Let me pray and we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you Thank you for Parkview. Thank you that this feels like home. Thank you that this is a place that practices grace. Thank you for what you're doing in and through its people for your kingdom. And as we begin this morning, I ask that the lyrics of our last song would be true that we would be changed from the inside out, and who we are tomorrow would look more like your son because of our experience of worshiping you this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up with two older sisters. I was the baby boy. I have the oldest sister, Patty, and then middle sister, Chrissy. Uh, It was not uncommon for me to... uh, Practice my ninja and karate moves on them because I had no other brothers. Uh, And you know, the ninja moves I'm talking about, I learned those, okay, from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because that was my favorite cartoon growing up. And I'm not talking about the Ninja Turtles that your kids are watching today. I'm talking about the 1980s classic Ninja Turtles, okay? (laughs) Some of you know what I'm talking about. So if you need a refresher, These Ninja Turtles, there's four walking, talking turtles, Okay, they live in the New York City sewers, and they fight crime and they know ninjutsu. So it was not an uncommon occurrence in my household for my sisters to be minding their own business and for me to suddenly jump off the highest point possible and attack them with plastic swords with a green mask on. Uh, This scene did not typically end too well for me in my home. But uh, I tell you that because you could imagine my excitement as a seven-year-old when my parents came to me one day and said, Guys, we're taking a family vacation to New York City, and we're going to visit your cousin. Because I had a cousin who lived there and who owned a restaurant. Well, at that point, I had one singular focus, and that was I was going to go to New York, and I was going to find a real life Ninja Turtle. Right? <laughs> that was my mission. Well, there was one day in particular on this trip that lives in infamy in my family. See. We were at my cousin's restaurant one night, and uh, we stayed till close, and we were enjoying the company of family and food and friends. And uh, as we were getting ready to leave, you know, we were, we were packing up our things. And if you're a parent, you know this. You're in New York City. It's late. It's evening. You're kind of unawares of where all your kids are, right? You're counting, and my mom's going, Patty, Chrissy, Josh, Patty, okay, we got them all. So we all gather up, and we head out of the restaurant. My cousin locks up, and we walk down the sidewalk. So at this point, as my dad retells this version of the story, and this story lives in infamy in the Ephraim household, uh, we were walking down the streets of New York City at night and my father looks down at his right where his seven-year-old son should have been and I am there no longer. And so what was supposed to be and was a calm scene turned into a scene of panic because my parents thought they were reliving the events of Home Alone 2 and uh, they, they legitimately thought, I just lost my son in New York City. And so everyone in the group is starting to kind of panic and they're calling for Josh and they're looking around. Well, my dad gets the bright idea to retrace his steps. And so my dad walks back towards the restaurant entrance and lo and behold, he finds a small figure tugging and pulling as hard as he can at two doors that lead underground. (laughs) My dad walks up to me and he says, Josh, what are you doing? You were supposed to be at my side. We thought we'd lost you. I remember looking into my father's eyes at that moment, and I said to my dad, Dad, I gotta get down there. The Ninja Turtles are down there. (laughs) See, at this point, my dad was faced with a difficult decision of possibly crushing the dreams and the imagination of his seven-year-old son. My dad, being a man of integrity, he did the best he could at the situation. And I remember looking into my father's eyes, and he looked back at mine and he said, Josh, I'm sorry, son, the turtles aren't there. But don't worry, they're on vacation. (laughs) So I used to really think the Ninja Turtles lived in the sewers of New York City. That was a real thought for me. And I bet some of you have had some I used to think moments. Well, I thought it might be kind of fun to see what some of the best I used to think moments from our Parkview staff and leaders would be. So let's watch this video and see some of their best I used to think moments.
0: Did that make any sense?
1: So I used to think that when I did this, my eyes would get stuck that
0: way. I thought, I used to think my knee was on my leg elbow.
1: When I was a kid, I really thought my dog Joe did go to the farm.
0: I used to think from the ages of three to seven that every year, this was going to be used to pull out my belly button. Yes, my friends, it is a corkscrew.
1: I used to think shrimp were supposed to be crunchy. Then I found out that you're not supposed to eat the tails. I used to think that the Salvation Army was an actual branch of the military.
0: I thought my mommy's kisses would make my hours go away, and I thought my mommy's kisses would make me stop crying, but they don't.
1: I'm a child of the 80s, and I do believe that the 80s is the best decade of music known to man, but I often mess up the lyrics. And so, the Paul Young song, Every Time You Go Away. Every time you go away. I used to think the lyrics were, Every time you go away, you take a piece of meat with you. I used to think that Roosevelt was called Roosevelt. I used to think cruise control meant the car drove itself. So when I was a kid, I used to think that the Tooth Fairy was stupid, for giving money for used teeth. I just didn't understand that. In fact, I still kind of think it's stupid. My dad said he could breathe underwater. I thought he did, but he really didn't. I used to think when I was younger that if I swallowed my gum, it would make all my organs stick together. That's not true, right?
0: I used to think that the Christmas Carol Winter Wonderland said, what was the line? In the meadow you can in the meadow you can build a snowman and pretend that he was parse and brown and that's mine i thought that he said um he was coarse and brown coarse and brown coarse and brown mine was pars and brown no not pars and brown parse and brown who's parse and brown <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> when i was little I used to think that the hymn, Bringing in the Sheaves, was actually bringing in the cheese. And I stood there as a five-year-old proclaiming, Bringing in the cheese, bringing in the cheese, we will all
0: rejoice when bringing in the cheese.
1: Okay, so I'm new here. Is it shmale? Is it schmali Shmale-y? I used to think it was called shmale, but then I realized it's schmali It's schmali Anyone who says Schmael is weird. No, it... <laughs> wait, is it schmali? Is it Schmael or Schmally? Schm... Sh- it's Schmally. <laughs> it's sh- It's Schmally. Sh- I still don't know if it's Schmally or schmali, so feel free afterwards to educate me on this one. Uh, well, I... I said, I'm sure a lot of you have had some of those I used to think moments. Well, I had my own as as I was preparing for this uh, scripture that we're reading today, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, which talks about Jesus's temptation. You know, when I grew up listening to teachers tell this story, there were two applications. It was memorize scripture, because that's what Jesus did, and resist temptation, because that's also what Jesus did. And that was all I knew. Because that's all that I was taught and I didn't think it had anything to do with the greater context of the Bible and that there was any other message in it. But that's what I used to think. But then I started looking at the entire story and I started looking about how it connects to the rest of the Bible and I realized that what I used to, used to think was not the entire picture. So we're going to unpack that today, but before we dive further into Matthew 4, we need to understand more about the author and its audience because it's going to shed some light on the text for us this morning. See, the book of Matthew, it never explicitly states its author, but is typically ascribed to Matthew due to the author identifying himself as both a tax collector and a disciple of Christ, of which Matthew fits both descriptions. Matthew is clearly an excellent, well-structured author, and he attempts to communicate the overarching theme in his book that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Matthew is a Jewish man speaking primarily to an informed Jewish audience. And that last point is important because we need to understand what does that mean that he's writing to an informed audience. It means that Matthew in his book assumed that portions of his text his audience would already know. He left multiple Jewish cultural events and terms unexplained because he knew that his informed Jewish audience would already knew what they meant. Matthew is writing to people who understood and knew their Jewish history. And they, this audience also knew an awful lot about the Old Testament, the first half of our Bible. And these people would have also had a really good understanding for the nation of Israel, which is talked about primarily in the Old Testament. They would have known both its history and its origins, which are explained by God in Genesis 12 to the nation's father, Abram, when it says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God's purpose for this nation was to point people to him. When people saw the God that they worshipped, they would also worship God as well. They were supposed to be a light to the world to show them who God was. One key story from the Old Testament that Matthew's audience would also know really well is when... Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians and then their subsequent exodus from slavery. And why wouldn't they know this? I mean, even today, millions of people are at least vaguely aware of this story, whether they profess to read the Bible or not. We see evidence uh, evidence of this in the recent release of the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. And while I admit that the theatrical version of this movie took several liberties in its interpretation of the events in Exodus, Christian Bale's role as Moses allows movie viewers to no longer wonder what might happen if Moses... Sounded a little bit like that man. <laughs> but just so we're on the same page, here's the deal. Here's the story. Uh, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God used Moses to lead his people out of there by performing ten plagues. After the tenth, Pharaoh allowed the, the uh, Israelites uh, to leave, and they were led by God into the wilderness. And God's deal with the Israelites was you would, uh, you would enter a promised land that I've prepared for you as long as you remain faithful to me. Well, anyone who knows their Old Testament history knows Israel struggled deeply with remaining faithful to God. They constantly disobeyed the Lord and turned to false idols. And so they wandered the wilderness for 40 years, and an entire generation of Israelites never saw the promised land. The audience Matthew is writing to in Matthew 4, they know that story really, really well. And it's going to play a big impact as we read our text today. So now as we turn back to Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and we have a little background about the author and the audience that Matthew's writing to, let's read some of those verses again and see what stands out. So let me read Matthew 4, 1 through 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. See, to the informed reader, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? You hear the number 40, and you hear the word wilderness, and you immediately think of Israel's story. But maybe at this point, you just think it's coincidence. There's nothing really to identify here. So you keep reading. So as you, as you continue reading, you get to the first temptation, where Jesus faces turning stone into bread. And he responds in verse 4 by saying, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, now the parallels between Jesus' temptation and Israel's history are growing more obvious, aren't they? And I say that because that first century audience, when they heard that quote from Jesus, they would have known that Deuteronomy 8.3 had said something very similar, which reads, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, maybe you still need some proof at this point. That Matthew is trying to bring about a comparison between Jesus and the nation of Israel. And so you keep reading, and you read about Jesus' response in Matthew 4, 7, when he's tempted to test God's faithfulness. And it reads, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, when Jesus says this, he's not saying just an isolated declaration that's not connected to any part of the Bible. Again, the Jewish audience would have known that 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 quote was from Israel's history. It was again from Deuteronomy 6.16, which which reads, Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Matthew cements his comparison when we read Jesus' words in verse 10 after being tempted to bow down to Satan, which reads, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, that last temptation Matthew's readers, they knew all too well. Because Old Testament history is littered with verses and stories of Israel turning from God and worshiping the idols of other nations. But that quote there, that would have been all too familiar because Israel had been told that before. In Deuteronomy 6.13, which says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him only. So let's sit on that for a second. I used to think Matthew 4, 1 through 11, the story about Jesus' temptation was just teaching us a couple of simple things about memorizing scripture and resisting temptation. But now, as we dig in more to what Matthew's doing we're finding out that he's using all these key terms and temptations and drawing out a comparison between Jesus and the nation of Israel, which begs us as the reader to ask the question, why? Why is Matthew wanting us to compare these two parties? The comparisons between Jesus and Israel only work to highlight the glaring and significant difference between the two parties. And that's that Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. See, Whether it was dealing with material possessions, testing God's faithfulness, or worshiping other gods, Jesus was obedient and succeeded at every point where Israel proved faithless. Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus is now fulfilling Israel's role and purpose. He is the Messiah. He is the one that's going to point people to God. He is is the one that's going to save people from their sins. But don't take my word for it. Jesus acknowledges this himself in John 14, 6, which reads, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, at first, Israel was going to point people to God. But when they weren't up to the task, Jesus fulfilled their role and purpose. Jesus is indeed the Savior. So you might be asking the question now, so what? What? So what? So Jesus is now fulfilling Israel's job, all right? He's, he's stepping in because they couldn't meet the job description. What, why do I care? In her commentary on Matthew 4, Dr. Janine Brown writes, Matthew doesn't emphasize Jesus' divinity in this particular text. Instead, he highlights Jesus' humanity by means of comparison with Israel's wilderness temptations. This means we can preach and teach Jesus' example for his followers as they encounter temptation. As Jesus walked through temptation without succumbing to it, so those who follow him and experience his presence among them can have hope for resisting temptation. So while it's true that, yes, Jesus' temptation in Matthew 4 does give us a model for how to resist temptation, we do have to ask ourselves this question, is that all there is to these verses? I mean, is Matthew's message simply that Jesus is better at resisting evil than we are? Seems like I didn't really need those 11 verses. I already kind of knew that. But I'm not so sure that's his only point. See, that third temptation cuts right to the chase. Jesus is faced with a choice. And he correctly and emphatically chooses to worship God and dispel Satan. And in doing so, a beautiful reality is then realized Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. See, that third temptation is Satan's blatant attempt to have Jesus avoid the anguish of the cross and disobey the Father. The lie, in this case, that he wants Jesus to believe is that Jesus can become the Lord of Lords and not bear God's wrath for sinners if He only bow down and worship Satan. In response, Jesus commits to doing the very thing which humanity has failed to do from the very beginning of time worship God only. He did for us what we cannot do for ourselves, He lived the perfect life we could never live. And in this breathtaking moment, we realize something. We're just like Israel. I'm just like Israel. We need Jesus to be our Savior because we are so helpless because I am so helpless on my own. My favorite part of this story is, well, you may be asking the question, what gives Jesus the authority? Why is he, he, uh, how can he step up to the role of Savior here? Well, this is why it's my favorite part of the story because Matthew answers this question in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. See, as we've been reading those verses, have you noticed there's no question as to who's in control? Jesus dictates the terms of this entire engagement. And he will not be forced into anything that he doesn't want to do. And when he's done with this little game between him and Satan, he says, away away from me, Satan. He's done. And Matthew, in those verses, is communicating a simple truth. Jesus has all the authority, and he is more than capable of fulfilling the role of Savior. Thousands of years separate us and the Israelites, but we aren't really so different. And that's kind of the whole point. Israel failed to worship God and to live obediently to him, and their failure is ours as well. We can't earn our relationship with God. We too needed a Savior. We needed Jesus. We need Jesus. See, I used to think a lot of things. I used to think that if I just had a great career, that God would be satisfied. I used to think if I could just start a family, that'll be enough for God. I used to think... That if I was a good enough person, doing good enough things in this world, that God and I, we'd be square. I used to think if I just avoided the really bad stuff, if I didn't do anything terrible, that I'd be good to go with God. And I don't know, maybe you used to think some of those same kind of things. But here's the problem. It's all stuff that we do. And it will never be enough It will never be enough to make us right with God. But you, me, all of us are called to live in the incomprehensible truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And he has already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let me pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in our hopelessness, you gave us hope. Thank you that in our desperation, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gave us hope, gave us a way to be part of your kingdom and part of your family. And I pray that that reality, the reality that Jesus has already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, I pray that each of us would come to to grips with that reality this morning. So this morning, I just simply thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, um, our middle school group went to Six Flags Great America for a trip. And that's an amusement park in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, a few of the leaders and students, we were, uh, we were watching from outside the line as two of our students boarded the Giant Drop. And the Giant Drop is a long tower and they take you up and they just let you go, thus the name Giant Drop. And so as we were, as we were watching two of our students board, there's, a, each row has four seats and they got into their seats, but I noticed at the end of their row, there was a kid who looked a little too short for the ride. Well, the Great America employee noticed this and he walked over and he unbuckled the kid from his, from his seat and he brought him over to this pillar. And at this pillar, there was a red line that started at the floor and went all the way to about here. And then there was a green line that went all the way to the top. And the idea is, if any part of your body hits the green line, you're tall enough to ride the ride. But if you can't reach the green line, you have to exit the ride. And so they, they put the kid with his back to the pillar and the employee measured, and by the very last hair on his head, the kid was able to ride the ride. He was just tall enough, and so they let him go uh, and get seated and buckled in. But I bet some of us feel that way. I think a lot of people think about God that way and resonate with that kid, thinking, Am I, do I measure up? Am I tall enough for the ride? Have I done enough good that God could love me? But here's the truth. There is not enough good we can do to earn that relationship with God. But in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so today, if, if this is just making your wheels turn hearing this about Jesus, or, or you wanna flat out just make a commitment to Jesus for the first time, I wanna invite you after our service just to come up and talk to some of our staff because we would love to have that conversation with you. For the rest of you, if you're, uh, we'd love to see you back here next week. Uh, we're going to continue our summer series on circles of influence as we hear from people and ministries from around DuPage County and around the world, and we get to see what God's doing uh, in and through the people of Parkview. So we hope you'll come back and get excited about what God's up to around here. Uh, let me pray for you, and then you'll be free to go. God, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the same power that allowed Jesus to live a perfect life and die on the cross and rise from the dead. That same power can exist in us. But I pray again that the reality of knowing that Jesus has already done for us, what we cannot do for ourselves, would resonate with us as we leave today. And we, we would be different tomorrow because of our experience with you this morning. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you next week.